is the High Motor Podcast. I am Andrew Dowdy. I wasn't here last week, and my apologies for that. But I am here this week. I will be here next week. I missed a week because because it's been a couple tough weeks in the Dowdy household. Our baby was due July 16th. She had booked that 40-week stay inside her mom's tummy. But uh, right before we got to 31 weeks, she inquired about an early departure. So she came on the 16th. May 16th, two months ahead of schedule, but the baby, we named her Aspen. She's doing well. She's just cuter than hell. She got over some hurdles right after coming out, and, you know, it's been a grind, but it's a grind that that we'll gladly take, and we're hoping she'll be able to come home the next couple of weeks. Uh, Mid-June would be a great target for her. So a week off from high motor, and I had a couple of guests scheduled for late May, early June. I wasn't going to cancel those, but... I opted for the distraction, get out of the hospital for a few hours, run home, fire up the pod, talk to some cool people. It will be a shorter one-guest show. That's probably going to be the case for the foreseeable future. I'm just not keeping up to date on most things. Um, Hey, also not keeping up on my daily college football previews, for those of you who may have noticed that. Those were supposed to start on May 16th, top 100 teams, one team per day, but that didn't happen. Uh, And with everything going on, I don't know when or if that is going to happen. But two episodes of High Motor will remain, and I'm excited about the next two shows. This show, and then I'll be back next week, like I said. And before I get to this, this week's guest, I know I'm a little late on this, but I just can't skip over it. I can't do it. I can't skip over that Art Bryles found employment. New head coach at Mountain Vernon High School in Texas, if you're living under a rock. He's back in football, and... I don't know what the hell they're doing down on Mount Vernon, but clearly common sense isn't near the top of their priority list. And when I, after I saw this news, I kept coming back to one thing. I kept coming back to one piece back from his Baylor debacle. Now, we're almost three years removed from when he was fired. And just over two years ago, here, let's go back. Remember when Bryles, he had sued some Baylor officials for defamation, and then he just dropped it. Out of nowhere, he just dropped the suit and he dropped it, we learned, because text messages, among other, some other things, were made public. And one of these texts was his response to a gang rape allegation from another student-athlete from a different sport. So a, a different student-athlete told her coach that, I think it was five Baylor football players had gang-raped her. That coach then gave the list to Bryles. His response was, why was she around those guys? So there, Art, he's asking the important questions first. What was she doing? That's a, that's a great call, Art. Great leadership, great moral compass. That's just really good, great common sense, you ignorant jackass. I, here's what I want to know. Asking Mount Vernon officials, if Bryles had done that at your school, if he had sent that text regarding a situation at your school, and he had gauged in the other cover-ups from the situation at Baylor, would you be employing him? Would he be an employee at your school right now? So how is it any different that if he did it at another school? And he's shown almost zero remorse. He's taken almost no responsibility for the situation. He said after the fact that he believes they, him being him and his, his staff, they some people in the Baylor administration, did all they could at the time. And this isn't like a Rick Patino situation. These aren't just NCAA violations. These are just life violations. This is being completely ignorant jackass. 
all it's doing is just helping more situations like this arise. He's fueling the fire. Not only did he hurt people that were victims of sexual assault at Baylor, he's fueling the fire for it to happen again elsewhere. Now, should Art Briles be employed anywhere, like any workplace, any company, any office again? See, I'm not sure. I don't know if I want to get into that. Maybe. I, you know, I don't really have an interest in playing that game. But I will play this game. Should he be employed by another university, another high school, any sort of academic institution, we'll say? Especially one in which he's having direct influence on young men. No. I mean, that's not even debatable. No, he absolutely shouldn't. Art Briles should be nowhere near a school. And here's the kicker. Mount Vernon High School knew that. They knew they shouldn't be hiring him. They knew that Art Briles should not be having a job like this. That's why they wrote up that bullshit press release highlighting no recruiting violations, which in itself is a lie. His staff had recruiting issues. But whatever. They wrote up this bullshit PR spin and dumped it on a Friday afternoon before Memorial Day weekend. They knew it was a mistake. It's like they googled when is the best time to drop a press release that will be greeted with negative reactions. Answer, Friday before Memorial Day, done, let's do it. Like, how badly, Mount Vernon, how badly do you need Art Bryles? Like, you couldn't have found anybody else. Of all the high school coaches in the state of Texas, across the country, wherever, all the assistants across that region, a former college player, just anybody who's not an ignorant dickhead, like, you couldn't have found anyone else? Of course they could have. They easily could have. There are probably dozens of guys that would love a job like that. I know it's not the big-time Texas high school football, but it's still a high school coaching job. Guys still want jobs like that. But they didn't want that. They wanted a guy who responded to a gang rape allegation with, why was she around those guys? Why was she around those guys? His immediate reaction, his response in a text message to the coach bringing the names of the five Baylor players who allegedly committed gang rape on this individual His response, why was she around those guys? I just... Mount Vernon, just find somebody else. Find somebody who hasn't asked, why was she around those guys? Okay, so late last week, I chatted with Ted Slauson from Perfect Bid, the documentary. That's the perfect showcase bid on The Price is Right back in 2008, telling the real story behind the bid. Um, that's been getting a lot of buzz over the last year or so. It tore up some film festivals. Amazon Prime had it for a while. It just dropped on Netflix maybe a month ago. And honestly, as much as I'd like for you to stick around for this episode of High Motor, if you haven't watched the doc yet, or you just don't know the story of The Perfect Bid, not just the fact that The Perfect Bid happened, but the whole story behind it, who did it, who was responsible for it, why it happened, when it happened, things like that, go watch it and come back. Get that backstory first and then come back to High Motor. So anywho, Ted Slauson, he's the man who memorized the prices of Prices Right items for years. Like literally decades, and he helped people win all kinds of crap. He got on the show himself, and then in 2008, he helped a man nail the perfect bid. Perfect bid, the contestant who knew too much. That contestant is Ted Slauson, and Ted, I want to start with something extremely important. Did you ever speak with Holly after your kiss? <laughs> uh, only when she gave me the autograph picture when we were filling out paperwork at the end of the show. But since then, no, I have not uh, spoken to her directly. 
So when we were emailing back and forth uh, setting up this podcast call, you mentioned that that you weren't always right. And I think there was one part in the show uh, they mentioned that they had changed models of a car or something. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. And so I'm, I'm curious, on those occasions when you weren't right, was the person that you were giving advice to, did they know like who you were and that you had studied all these prices and they were baffled? Walk us through that if you wouldn't mind, like one of those scenarios. Um, well, the show before the one where I had yelled out the price of the first item and Bob heard me and then kind of made a joke about how, you know, I couldn't win and then he found out I was exactly right. Um, the show prior to that one or maybe two before that one, um, I had been yelling out prices through the whole show. Nobody was paying attention. And finally, at the very end, there was a young woman in contestants row named Marjorie. And she, I'm pretty sure, was listening to me because I was yelling 459 for a dishwasher. And she bid 450, and it was 459. And you can see the look on her face kind of like, wow, I should have said 459. And she went up on stage and I can't remember what her pricing game was, but uh, she ended up in the showcase. And during the showcase round where I was sitting in the audience, you can't really see the contestants in the showcase because the whole uh, turntable area kind of pivots. And so during the showcase, they kind of pivoted away from the audience a little bit. Um, But she was the top winner. She passed the first showcase. They started showing the second showcase, and it had – uh, the video cassette of the movie Twins, so that tells you how long ago that was. Um, a VCR, a large screen TV, uh, a giant, the giant rocking horse they used to have on, and then there were two cars at the end of the showcase. And I knew the price of the cars. I was pretty certain they were about thirteen thousand one fifty together. Again, that shows you how long ago this was. Um, I knew the prices of everything else pretty much. But the big screen TV, I had never seen, but I figured, well, there's three of them on the show. They all are right around $4,000, so I'll just go with $4,000. And I yelled out, when Bob asked for her bid, I yelled, and you can hear it on the tape, eighteen five, And you can hear her, or you can see her kind of glance toward the audience a little bit, and he said, what do you bid? And she said, eighteen five. So it was exactly the way I said it. It wasn't like she said 18500 She said it exactly how I had yelled it. Well, as it turns out, the big screen TV was only $2,300, so she was over by about uh, $1,200. And at the end, um, when the show goes off the air and they take all the contestants up the aisle to go fill out their paperwork, she did not make eye contact with me at all. And I figured, okay, well, she's probably not very happy that I made her go over in the showcase. Um, and there was another incident a few tapings later where there was a military guy who had ended up in the showcase. And I think throughout the show, he was the first one on stage, I think. But during the whole show, I think he had noticed that I was yelling out a lot of things that were exactly right. And so when it came to the showcase, his was, I can't remember if it was a bedroom or a living room. And it ended with the golf clubs and the golf car. They did that showcase a lot. And I knew the price of everything pretty much. The only thing I think I didn't know was the carpeting in the showcase, maybe something something that I kind of guesstimated, and or it was a bedroom and a mattress, I think, and I didn't know the total price of the bedroom with the mattress. But I figured I was close, and I 
signaled to him 10,000. And he was looking at his friends, and they were telling him like 9,500. And then you can see him kind of look over at a different person, which was me, and I was signaling 10,000. And the price of his showcase was $9,896. So he went over. <laughs> and at the end of the show, you know, we we're waiting outside, and he came out and he, like, did the pretend strangle thing on me, which was kind of funny. I'm like, I am so sorry. I was like, I was really sure it was going to be right around 10000 In that case, so, I guess in either case, so Marjorie and they mentioned a, a military guy, did they know who you were? Like, did you give them any indication before that that you track prices, or did anybody else know? No, the, I, I did not advertise that. And like I said in the documentary, when my sister and my dad would go to tapings, they would be the ones to be like, well, you know, he pays attention and he keeps track and he memorizes the prices. You should listen to him. But I wouldn't be the one to go and tell him. And then you heard probably in the documentary when Roger Dobbwood says that was something they didn't allow was for people to go through the line saying, well, I know all the prices, so you should listen to me. And like I said, I would not want that kind of pressure and have 300 people looking at me and then, you know, find out that I really don't know some of the prices and, then they're like, well, he's just, you know, full of himself or whatever. Um, I mean, Bob kind of did it for me on that one taping where they just, at that point, the audience just kept looking. And what was kind of funny about that taping was they didn't have a big enough audience for the second show. So a lot of people from the first show went to the second show. And even in that show, you can see people looking over at me. And I was way over on the side of the audience. But they all knew. In fact, when I walked in, this is the other part of that day where I felt like a celebrity. I walked in the studio to get, you know, to be seated. And like, I could hear people going, oh, there's Theodore, there's Theodore. Where's he going to sit? Where's he going to sit? Where's he sitting? And it was like, they're all watching to see where's he going to be so that when I get called, I can look at him. So that was kind of a funny day because it wasn't just the first show. It was the second show too, where it was kind of, there was, you know, a lot of people paying attention. Now, after the perfect bid, I think you kind of described it, and and, re, and you're going to have to remind me on one of the producers' names where she came over, and I think you said something effective. She gave me the, the dirtiest look that you've ever had in your life. What? Walk us through, like, I think you said it, it was an abnormally long delay. What all happened in those 10 or 15 minutes or whatever it was? Like, were you were you nervous? Did you know that they, were, that they know who you were at that point? I had been back... There was a 10-year break between the show that I was a contestant on and the next taping that I went to with my sister. And then, like I said, most there was one taping I went by myself, but I always went with somebody else, you know, figuring that if I got if they got called, I could help. But um, this was the first time where I was eligible eligible to be a contestant again, and um, they didn't they had not connected the dots as to who I was. Now there was a taping where. It was in 2004. We were there for my niece's birthday, my sister and, and me and my niece. And we were in, we were pretty close to the front. I think we were in the third row, something like that. And I had gotten the first item on the nose, and I had yelled out the price. Nobody listened. I had gotten the second item up for bids on the nose. I had yelled out the price. Nobody was listening, or so I thought. When the second game ended... It was a big win. They won either money or a car or something, and everyone jumped to their feet, and we were all clapping. And, you know, Bob throws to commercial, and the lights go down. He walks up to the front of the stage, and Roger met him at the front of the stage with the next price tag. And I 
looked up just in time to see Bob say the words to Roger, got those last two exactly right. And Roger swung around and looked right in our general area. So I was like, wow, Bob's paying attention. He knows that I got those last two right on the nose. But um, And there was another taping where, uh, and this one's in the documentary, where Kathy had signaled to her friend who was sitting next to me to make sure I wasn't using a price list of any kind because that's illegal. Um, so they were, I guess, a little bit aware of who I was, but not as much as back in the days when I was going, you know, a couple times a year or several times a year. Uh, so I had given uh, Terry's wife, Linda, the bid. We both signaled it to him. He bid. Um, that was when Kathy Greco, the producer, had her clipboard and she walked over and she was just kind of staring in this production like area and it was like a one-way screen i think at the time you could couldn't really see through it from this side but the other people could see through and so i knew at that point i thought okay we've we just got this on the nose because she's already kind of doing odd things that lead me to think that there's a problem or so they think and then when the second contestant bid and they went to commercial that's when it just like the Music went down and the lights went down and we were all just kind of waiting and um, I don't remember the specifics. I know Drew was off stage for a while and then he came back and um, there was music playing to try to keep the audience from you know losing all their energy and there were people on, working on the show on the stage and they were all kind of talking with each other and you could tell. I mean, I knew... I was probably the only one in the audience who knew what was going on and everyone else was probably just like, Oh, this is normal. You know, it probably just takes a while. And were you nervous? Uh, like, did because you knew what was going on, did you think that you were going to, I don't know, get, get in trouble or somehow they obviously knew that you weren't using a pricing list, but did you think that there was some sort of, I don't want to say legal ramifications, but did you, were you worried at all? I, yeah, I was, I think a little bit nervous just because it was taking them so long and, especially when I looked up and the camera was was right in front of me on the stage pointed at me and they weren't taping, but I don't think that matters. They can still, you know, record stuff even though they're not on the air. And then when I looked up again, the next time they had it on Terry's wife, Linda, and I leaned over and I told her, I'm like, you're on camera right now. And she said, what? And I said, they've got you on camera. So smile. And then at the end of the show, when Kathy was giving me the <laughs> evil look while they were going over to look at the prizes and everything, um, I didn't quite know what to think. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, when it was all over and the, then the taping was over and Linda came back down to her seat and then Kathy walked over to the front of the stage and she was telling, you know, she was saying, she was trying to get Linda's attention. I was like, Linda, they want you. And she motioned for her to come up on stage. And at that point, I thought, okay, so they're going to call. They're going to take her somewhere. Then they're going to take me somewhere. And they're going to question us about how did you know the price of that showcase? You know, there's going to be this big thing. There was nothing. They let, you know, everyone leave. And it was another other time that I've ever been there where they didn't have enough tickets for the net or enough uh, audience members for the second taping. So I went back to the second taping and they had people watching me that whole taping. They moved me to, again, that same side of the audience where you can't see the contestants during the showcase round. Um, from a seat that was way in the back, they were like, somebody came out from CBS and 
walked over and asked me to stand up and just, she didn't say a word to me. She just <laughs> kind of pointed and walked over to the other side and asked some guy to get up and pointed to the seat and I'd be yelling out bids and people on the production staff would be peeking out from behind curtains and kind of watching me to see what I was saying. And it was just kind of funny. And I figured, well, if they didn't say anything after the first taping, you know, that's not like they're going to, and the fact that they didn't keep me from going to the second taping was kind of interesting to me because it was after that, that I found out through semi-official channels that there's a list of names at CBS. And if a page sees one of those names on a driver's license, they're supposed to notify security immediately. And then when uh, CJ had that in the documentary, they asked him to take it out because they said, oh, no, he can go back whenever he wants. There's no list of banned contestants. So you're not on any list that you know of or that they'll admit right now. Have you been back since then? I have not been back. Um, I watched about halfway through or another maybe five, six months of the show after the show aired with the perfect bid. And then because of what happened, they were – you know, bringing in new prizes all the time and it was getting harder and harder and harder to keep up with all the new stuff. And frankly, I wasn't enjoying it as much as when Bob Barker was the host. So I just kind of stopped watching at that point. So, and I haven't been back to any taping after that. Did you talk to Terry and or Linda after any time after over the last, what are we, 11 years now? Yes. After the taping, Terry and Linda came out um, I was already in line for the next taping at that point. Um, people were congratulating Terry because he had his, his cue card with his total winnings. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Linda kind of walked over to where nobody was around, and she either motioned to me or called my name, and I walked over. And she handed me a business card, and she said, we want to keep in touch with you after the show. Um I don't remember specifically what she said, but I was like, okay. And when I went to take the card, it was obvious that there was a wad of money behind the card. And I said, no, it's like, I don't want you to pay me. I don't, you know, I just was wanted to be helpful. And she's like, no, no, we want you to have this. You were our good luck today. And I'm like, are you sure? Cause I'm really not comfortable. And she's like, no, no, we want you to have that. I was like, okay. And they went on their way, and I counted it, and it was $200. And I thought, well, that was way more generous than they needed to be. I would have been happy with zero. And in the book Terry wrote, he has a chapter about me where he talks about that I might have known all these prices, but he didn't get any help from me. And uh, also that that $200 was an error. She took the money out of the wrong pocket, and she meant to give me $40. And I was like, Okay, well, two $20 bills folded up feels a lot different than 10 $20 bills folded up, but, you know, whatever. Um, so I had talked to them after the show, and then I had, um, because Terry's email was on the business card, I had emailed a few times, um, you know, just to see how things were going. And, you know, there were a few back and forth, and then as soon as the show aired and he you know, publicly took credit for <laughs> coming up with the bid all by himself. You know, I didn't feel it necessary after that point to continue to communicate with them. It's just like, well, then you completely remember this incident <laughs> a totally different way than I do. Did you, I guess, did you care? I mean, this was your hundreds of hours of work. I, I know that he's outside of the fact that he's obviously blatantly lying and he's downplaying the, your role in it, but 
What was your level of caring in that? Yeah, in a way, it was kind of insulting that, you know, you can't even say, well, there was this guy in the audience and, you know, he knew all his stuff and I just happened to be there on the right day. You know, anything would have been fine. But to go out of the way to make up a story about, oh, our our anniversary is April 3rd and my wife's birthday is in July and that's where the 7.43 comes from. And it's like, that makes no sense at all. But okay, if that's what you believe. So have you talked to him since that those emails or once those emails fell off and the show aired, you haven't talked to him since then? No, not at all. The filmmaker actually, one of the reasons this project interested him is because he's had the same kind of thing happen to him where somebody else took credit for something that he did and then, you know, publicly just, you know, and he was completely ignored. So that was part of the reason he did it. And in the beginning, the documentary really wasn't so much focused on, you know, Terry's story and how most of it can be disproved. Um, that kind of evolved as he was forced to do different cuts for the um, for the different film festivals and everything and, you know, got down to the final version and, he even sent me a message one day. He's like, Terry's really not going to like the last version of this film. <laughs> Did you try to tell your story after the show aired or at any point until this this documentary came out? Yes, there was um, a, a reporter from Esquire magazine contacted me in 2010. And this is actually how CJ got wind of the story. CJ's the filmmaker. And he called and I think we I think he talked with me for two hours on the phone. It was a very, very long interview. <clears throat> and you know, basically hearing my side of the story and if you read the article the way I read the article, the ending is basically saying without coming out and saying it that the that Terry and Linda probably aren't telling the truth. And it was a story completely unrelated to the actual incident. It was about something they saw on one of the trips that he won in his show, in the double showcase. I know in the documentary you, you mentioned that the public reaction when people found out that you were the person behind it, wh when did that public reaction occur? When, was that after the Esquire article? Um, actually, when the perfect bid happened, um, there's a website called goldenroad.net that I've been a member of for, at the time it was probably only about five years or so, and I've been on there you know since then. And some of most of them figured out that I must have known because, you know, they knew my history with the show and had seen, you know, other episodes. But, um, yeah, there were different viewpoints here and there on the Internet because, you know, anyone can write whatever they want. And, you know, some of them were like, well, this over obsessed fanboy and blah, blah, blah. And then Drew in one of the. Um, I think this is on YouTube. I don't think it's the one that CJ used in the film, but it's another interview where he's talking about the incident and he uses a less than flattering term um, in reference to me. Um, and just, you know, it was so a lot of, it's so funny now because I get, before it came out on Netflix, I would get probably a couple messages a week, a couple new friend requests, and they're used, almost everybody has been, wow, this is so neat. Thanks so much. This is such a great story. And, you know, you're, you're obviously did your homework and blah, blah, blah. And since it's come out on Netflix, I get like five new messages a day and like friend requests constantly on Facebook. So it's kind of funny that 
and I don't, that certainly wasn't my, like, you know, oh, I want everyone to feel sorry for me and tell me what a great job I did. But it's funny that everybody seems to be just so positive in their comments to me. Why do you think that when I kept watching it, I, I understand that the show would be concerned if you had a price list, obviously. But I was also wondering why they would be so concerned and so worried that they have this super fan. The show has, you know, hundreds of thousands of super fans, but you were on a, on a different level and you've been watching literally every show and you're this top tier super fan. Why are they so concerned about having somebody like you watch the show and help? Don't, don't viewers want to watch people win? I guess my question. <laughs> and that's the funny thing. At the very first film festival we went to, Roger Dobkowitz showed up completely by surprise. We had no idea he was coming. And um, so he's come to many of the film festivals that we've been to and has spoken. We usually do like a Q&A after the film is shown. And he has said repeatedly, he's like, Bob and I would have killed for a perfect bit in the showcase. He's like, we always wanted that to happen. We, he's like, we even, I remember we talked about it in like the third week the show was on the air because the producer at the time was saying, well, if it happens, what should we do? Should we fill the, the display with all zeros? Should we do like just a single zero? So they had talked about it happening way back in the beginning. And the timing was just probably perfect for this paranoid, you know, oh my God, that fan group that he belongs to is trying to take down the show and Roger must have fed him that showcase price. And it's like, even if Roger did feed me that showcase price, which he didn't, how in the heck would we arrange it so that the person bidding on that showcase would be looking at me for information? Like the whole conspiracy thing was like, did you even think about this? Because this isn't even realistic. Do you have any plans to ever go to another show again? Uh, not Probably not to another Price is Right. I just, like I said, I don't watch it anymore. When I do see it, it's just, it's like, I don't know how, there's just too much flashing and <laughs> colors and movement. And um, like I said, Bob was such a consummate master of ceremonies. And then Drew just gets up there and is like, next prize, please. Really? That's the best you can do? How much are they paying you per year? And all you can say is next prize, please. Anyway. All right. Perfect bid. That's available on Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, uh, probably elsewhere. A, a great look at the real story behind the perfect bid, uh, the man behind the perfect bid, Ted Lawson. Hey, Ted, I love the doc. I love chatting with you today. I really appreciate the time today. You take care. Thank you. You too.